Welcome to the Matterhorn Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here, we have conversations about cultural studies, the arts, and writing. If you want to sign up to my Substack newsletter for free, just click on the link in this homepage. Today, I'm reading an article that I, I published last year. Actually, it was the first article that I published on the Matterhorn, my online publication, um, and it's called The Sea. It investigates the intersections of literature and art when we think about the sea. And it also draws on, I guess, some of my own experiences. So I'll be reading The Sea for you today. I've always had a fearful respect for the sea. Growing up in New England, we would often go to beaches on the Atlantic Ocean. It was not the culture to truly swim there. With few exceptions, we merely dipped our toes or ran quickly in and out, unless we found ourselves, for example, on the calm side of Cape Cod on a very hot day. It was simply too cold. And all of us had seen Jaws, shot on Martha's Vineyard, the Kennedy famous island just off Massachusetts. I probably saw Jaws when I was about six or seven, about the same time I was interested in moving deeper into the waves. Maybe it was too young to see it, or maybe I would have been doomed with those horrific images to haunt me for life at any viewing age, especially considering the real, though infrequent, stories in the local news. What a great film series. Of course, nobody wants to be eaten by a shark, and even though we know it's truly unlikely, many of us are afraid of this fate. National Geographic claims it's because we're afraid of losing control. I guess that's true. But also, we're afraid of what we don't know. The shark attacks in Jaws are metaphors for our fear of the unknown and the miraculous power of nature. In fact, we don't even see the shark in Jaws until 21 minutes into the film. This clip above of the first attack doesn't even show the shark. The invisibility is the fear because the ocean represents the unknown. If you go to my original article, you can see the clip that I'm, that I'm talking about embedded um, right on my Substack page. Sure, a great white might pose a real problem if it's swimming around near surfers or children kicking on floats. Though we know attacks are rare, the deepness and strangeness of the sea that envelops these massive creatures is as fearful as the predator itself. Apparently, I'm not the only one who was affected by this film. In Before and After Jaws, Changing Representations of Shark Attacks from the Australian Association for Maritime History in 2012, Beryl Francis explores the shifts in our understanding of sharks, especially great whites. He he claims that the movie itself, as well as changes in media reporting of attacks in response to the film, created more fear, but also led to more scientific research and general public knowledge about sharks. I'm talking a lot about sharks when I meant to start talking about the sea, but how can we capture the beauty of the sea? It seems so cliched. I guess I'm avoiding it for that reason. I'll get back to this idea when we look at literature that engages with it. Film and painting can tackle this problem by just going for an aesthetic reflection without comment, but we can also look at the sea first by what we do on it, in it, and at its shores. What do you do at the sea? What do you think about? For some reason, I keep thinking about the opening of Calvary, the film from Ireland in 2014, and its gorgeous shots of the Irish coastline. Although the beauty of the waters enters the film several times, it also seems to mimic the turmoil and darkness in the protagonist priest's mind. 
I've also got a clip of this opening on the Substack page. Interestingly, the opening shot of this film features surfers. They have nothing to do with the film directly. There is something magical about the idea that individuals can tame the beast of the sea with just a small board, and I guess that is why the priest is trying to do this with his inner, inner conflict. The reality of great white sharks in New England didn't keep the surfers away, but most of us laymen stayed safer and warmer near shore. Even then, our parents taught us about dangers of riptides and fast-changing currents. There seemed to be little good that could come from venturing into the water. But later, I lived in Hong Kong, where the waves were decidedly smaller in the South China Sea, and the warm beaches were ubiquitous. I learned to swim in the sea, shark nets helped ease my mind, and I felt a desire to try out surfing. So I tried. In Bali, in Beritz, in the Algarve. I not only learned how to surf, or at least ride a few in, but also how to swim with the waves. On a particularly rough day, my instructor saw me being battered by the waves. He made me dive under them, with board and tow, again and again and again. Somehow I began to feel a harmony with the noisy waters that had woken me early in the morning, threatening my mortality. I'm a terrible surfer, but I think I understand it at least a little now. There is a simultaneous, little understanding that creates a feeling of control and a continuous susceptibility to the unknown movement of the tides. To learn more about these sensations and the beauty of the surf, I turn to literature rather than push myself through rough waves that, admittedly, I still find a little frightening. From the beach, I investigated those feelings. Surfing Beauty Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life, a book from 2016, is a memoir by journalist William Finnegan about his obsession with the sport. It's affected his life through friendships, family, and work in many ways and seems to be something like a religion for him. You can read a recent article he wrote for The New Yorker, linked on, linked on my article, um, on big wave surfer Kenny Lai. Although he often talks about the beauty of the waves and experience of surfing them, he also discusses some at Kelly's Cove in California that were, quote, not things of beauty, but they had guts, and if you could decode some of their eccentricities, they offered occasional pitching backdoor barrels, end quote. He finds a greater purpose in the surf that he cannot escape, even when it's dangerous. He discusses discomfort to find ideal surf conditions, such as the very cold winters at Ocean Beach, where a broken leash and a long swim could spell hypothermia, in his words. It made the passage of time feel distorted. When we distort time, are we truly living? Have we escaped our mortality? Finnegan's winters in Madeira were especially frightening as a reader. Others would watch him and his friends surf the, quote, serious wave, Heave lo, have, heavy, sorry, long interval lines marched out of the west, bending around the headland into a breathtaking curve. This watching, as he watched the surfers long ago in Hawaii to learn how to do it, shows the sport as performance, but also shows the distinction of being in the water or outside of it. There is safety on the side and perspective. I think of other texts that are aware of performance, such as Macbeth or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is everything a performance, and if so, for whom? Shakespeare's Macbeth says, quote, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Is it then the fatalist or pessimist who pushes dangerous limits, or is it the one who is truly living? 
How we respond to fear can also be both performance and art. The friend calls the Paul de Mar a picturesque kamikaze closeout, but the author found it mesmerizing. The not normal ocean behavior, as he says it, reminds us that we can start to understand nature, but it can still surprise us with devastating effect. The author states, quote, I could tell deep in my chest that everything was wrong with these waves. The act of surfing becomes a kind of hubris. Although it was a near-death experience, instead of his body reacting with nerves by, quote, shaking, he felt fantastic. He says he talked about going to church to feel humble. We are insignificant, and the waves don't care if we live or die. We are simply there to witness them. What do you think of people who knowingly push the limits in this way? Big way surfers or free climbers, for example? How has danger affected your view of the world? Finnegan's friend barely survives the dangerous waves, then makes a series of semi-comic drawings of it. Peter Spacek also uses surfboards to create art. Surf has inspired a lot of art in many genres. Other surf art murals attempt to bring experiences at sea to many passerby. In a way, these artists are immortalizing their experiences as well as trying to capture the feeling for the public who may not have the skills or guts to try it out. Hokusai's Great Wave Before surfing, humans tackled waves for survival, either for economic benefit or by directly hunting fish and other sea creatures. Under the wave of Kanagawa, or the Great Wave, from 1830 to 32, by Katsushika Hokusai is an iconic work. You can do a lot of reading about this painting, but it's also important to just look. Often at museums, I like to read about the art later when you can pick up one of those pamphlets or find a QR code. If we just encounter the painting first as colors and lines and depictions of a human vision of the world, we see something beautiful. How does the painting make you feel? Where would you place yourself in it? Which lines make you want to enter it? What shapes mimic nature and which ones seem to defy it? Although we tend to look first at the beauty of this wave itself, as well as the distant Mount Fuji, an important element of Hokusai's painting is the inclusion of the tiny-looking people on fishing boats. They are vulnerable, vulnerable like a surfing Finnegan in the unexpected waves he sometimes faced. Besides this YouTube video that I've got here to explain the painting a bit more, another interesting article is from Gary Heike, the old man, Mount Fuji, and the sea. Here's a quote from this article. Depictions of waves and the movement of water in Chinese painting, which had a formative influence on Japanese depictions of the same styles, were found in the traditional genre of mountains and water, or sansou, Chinese shanshui. The indigenous Japanese painting tradition known as uh, Yamato-i had utilized the power of waves to highlight human struggle. Hokusai's numerous early depictions of the movement of water oscillated between such decorative fields of linear patterns and dramatic depictions in which animals and human figures are shown struggling against waves. What gave Hokusai the ultimate wave design in 36 views of Mount Fuji, the sequence in which this painting was a part of, was a sense that drama was being played out in the realistic space. It was Hokusai's experiments with this design in a Western-style format that played the key role in this integration of realism, decorativeness, and narrative. I love the way he highlights this painting as an intertext of several different cultural influences made new. Hokusai was conversely a strong influence in European Japanese, especially for Claude Monet. 
He later discusses how although the Edo period in Japan was seen as largely closed to foreign influence, in part the isolation strategies of the rulers led to some like Hokusai to be even more interested in the outside world. Hokusai drew his influence from elsewhere, including Western realism of the Dutch, as well as architecture or man-made objects, the boats in this case. Maybe understanding the avant-garde multicultural aspect of the wave makes it clearer why there are so many reinventions of the image. For example, the British Museum's blog um, highlights related uh, these examples related to street art and fashion, and there are many in the link that you can see. The Environmental Humanities Journal highlights the way Hokusai's painting has been used more recently in discourse about the Anthropocene, which will be a later topic for this newsletter. He investigates painted reimaginings from the 21st century with the idea of humans' effect on the planet. Quote, this explicit transport of Hokusai's wave into a conversation about embodiment and materiality sets up the life that Hokusai's wave has in today's catastrophe-conscious world. In the newest uh, rescriptings of the great wave, there is much less of the contemplative and much more of the calamitous. The wave has come to stand for imminent disaster, climatic and more, and operates as something of a call to arms. The Sound of the Sea Michael Cerigliano II of the Met Museum tells us of the composer Claude Debussy and how the way that he was inspired by Hokusai's work and his musical depiction of the sea, La Mer, or the sea in French, from 1905. The original recording included a cover with the great wave on the front. Music, like the art of Impressionists, was also influenced in this way. He tells us, The aesthetic parallels between Hokusai and Debussy within their uh, respective disciplines are many, as both artists choose style over realism and placed an intense focus on brilliant color and vibrant energy, just as Japanese art of the Edo period prized decorative motives independent of system or conventional development, so did Debussy have to distaste for formal structure, motivic development, and the use of strict musical forms that composers adhered to during the classical and romantic periods. You can hear the literal sounds of the sea made into music as well, such as Lindsay Olson's Sounds in the Sea, the the art of ocean acoustics, she brings science and art together to make it accessible to all. Although the studies, um, although she studies the ocean with scientists, it is also elusive. Quote, the ocean is unimaginably vast, something we are accustomed to hearing in words, but rarely experience firsthand. We have only explored a tiny fraction of the ocean. The awesome nature of the sea is captured in the beauty of the music. Several other artists using ocean sounds can be found via a link I have in the article um, with sound projects and, um, and film projects as well. Cinema and the Sea How many romances or mysteries have we seen on the shores of the ocean? Here is a nice list of beach scenes and a link. Less often are films actually out at sea. Of course, there's a pragmatic issue of shooting, as well as the strangeness of spending extended time at sea that conversely makes it an interesting subject when it is tackled. The ocean is a space of imagination as well as cultural conflict. These interpretations help us understand it at its most basic level without human geographical constraints, which is paradox paradoxically vast and complicated. 
And exploring these ideas, we might look to two of my favorite postmodern philosophers, Deleuze and Foucault. It likely is no coincidence that two of the works of geophilosophy most frequently cited by human geographers make reference to the ocean as a space of alternative socio-spatial formations. In 1000 Plateau, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari write, the sea is a smooth space par excellence. And in Of Other Spaces, Michel Foucault writes, the ship is the heterotopio par excellence. In both cases, the allusions to the ocean as a space of alternate ordering are metaphorical, but like all metaphors, they gain some of their power because they resonate with what is known about the material condition of the entity being referenced. Gilles Deleuze's L'Image Mouvement, or Cinema 1, is a great starting point for any cinema, but especially for the imaginative forces of the sea. L'Image Poussion is not a pulsation, but an image of force or a driving action, these images in cinema do not capture the original reason for what we see as movement or action. For example, we cannot see hunger, but we can see the way a person reacts to hunger. He sees all these forces within the great force toward death, une grande poussion de mort. In other words, they are all forces of nature and forces of the mortal world. To play with ideas like this in cinema, Deleuze proposes that filmmakers use naturalism, that is, instead of realism, as a reflection of the world. They create natural and plausible worlds where the drives can be explored. The sea is this world. As even marine biologists only have a narrow view of life in the ocean, we have to imagine a kind of ellipsis to suppose the forces of the sea. However, the sea's force is strikingly different from humanity's. Where we might seek power, love, sex, food... The sea simply is a force of nature. As far as we know, it seeks nothing other than to exist, to swell, to calm, to pull, to hold something up or sink it down. And although there are shores, there is no true beginning or end to the sea, just like Deleuze and Guattari's notion of the rhizome in A Thousand Plateau. In discussing Old Man River, and therefore metaphors of water, they discuss the ideas of the intermezzo in relation to water. They posit the idea that American and British literature take up this in-between space as well, with no clear definitions, allowing them to move more freely in dialogue, an idea of being between things as the location of idea formation and the foundation of life, such as a stream without beginnings or end that undermines its banks and picks up speed in the middle. In other words, the middle is all. Perhaps the lack of physical definition within oceans, other than changing shorelines, allows it to stand as a metaphor for all life, as well as an individual's life. It is chaotic by definition, creating a subject that can no longer even dichotomize. Fear has no beginning or end, but love doesn't either. In a Buddhist way, we can think of ourselves as energies in the universe along with the ocean. What does this mean about our place in it? Particularly when it may be extremely chaotic, like this scene included, um, embedded in the article from Tom Hanks' Greyhound in 2020, where he was bringing men and supplies across the Atlantic from the US to the UK during World War II. The endlessness of the attacks, as well as the sea itself, were mirrored in Hank's visage, showing both resolve and futility, both great leadership and humility, for he knew that although they could try their best, there were many factors that made imminent death possible, 
back and forth, up and down, in a seemingly endless motion with hopes of eventual freedom. One cannot help but see the whole experience as a purgatory. But for what purpose? Is it simply the notion that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger? Here the aggressor was below the sea if it were not the, swell, if it were not the swells of the sea herself. The German U-boats invisibly preyed on their vessels, like we imagine the shark in Jaws. Although things are different on the ship, they need their leader more than ever, just as the lifeguard in Jaws takes the lead. Leadership in these situations doesn't deny the possibility of death. Instead, it looks to attempt its avoidance with foresight, as well as to console those who are living. Sometimes the fear is that we will fall in love in the strange, with the strange darkness of the sea, that we will want to dive into the unknown. In The Shape of Water, which is that film by Guillermo uh, del Toro in 2017, it goes in that direction. There's so much going on here that I'll leave you with it for now and maybe come back to it from a different angle another week, but feel free to make comments on the article about your thoughts. A Literary Ocean What happens when you take away images of the sea and replace them with words? I am often afraid of cliché when describing the ocean as a fiction writer. How can we not be? We have all seen it before, and yet it does not cease to amaze us and is different every time, in every context, as we come to the shore or float atop the salt water in a different frame of mind. Many poems dance through images of the ocean and use tides and waves as metaphors. I have linked a pretty good list of poetry about the sea. One poem I love that takes place on a beach is Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach from 1867. Although a calm scene, it is one of great sadness with beautiful imagery like these lines from the first stanza. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves drew back and fling at their return up the high strand, begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. The pathetic fallacy of the sea reminds us that we are all connected. It reminds us that grief is everywhere and that has been since humanity began. The next stanza compares the scene to the same that Sophocles would have experienced millennia ago. But the salt water like our own tears is not only grating or singing, it cleanses through its beauty. The sounds are therapeutic and remind us that life goes on. However, many interpret Arnold's poem as a fear of science taking over religion. Religion, the sea of faith, might have once provided protection to the Christian world, but is now feared to be in, in recession. This is a quote from an article that I link here for you. What have we lost in societal rejection of religion and what have we gained? Could someone who embraces modernity still lament this loss of faith? What strikes me about the poem, though, is that the experience in the vastness is remarkably solitary. Through the immensity of nature, we can feel very small, but this isn't necessarily a bad thing. By letting go of self-importance, we can feel oneness with nature and a calm humility. However, you might also feel extreme fear if, for example, you are lost at sea or are battling a mysterious sea creature. The conflicts are with nature, but also with strength and the fears within oneself. Short takes. I'll bombard you quickly with a few novels now because I couldn't pick just one or two, and I'm sure you'll have loads more to add. Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea investigates a man taking the challenges of reeling in a huge marlin, only to have it eaten by sharks. 
Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea, also features Hokusai's painting on the first edition. Here, the sea is also a place of seclusion for the main character. Octavio Paz wrote the surrealist prose poem short story My Life with the Wave to show the tumultuous nature of love. Quote, she would stretch out in front of me, infinite as the horizon, until I too became horizon and silence. Full and sinuous, she would envelop me like music or some giant lips. Whether you think of your own lover or of nature's lover, loving envelopment, it's hard not to see great beauty in these words. Virginia Woolf also takes us to, to the sea in several novels and short stories. The Waves is a novel about a group of young friends growing up and facing grief. The times of day in each chapter correspond with moments of their lives and are figuratively demonstrated by the sea. There are italicized descriptions of the waves at the start of each chapter as if mimicking the grief of the characters. Here are two examples. The wind rose, the waves drummed on the shore like turbaned warriors, like turbaned men with poisoned assages who, whirling their arms on high, advance upon the feeding flocks with white sheep. The waves broke and spread their waters swiftly over the shore. One after another, they massed themselves and fell. The spray tossed itself back with energy of their fall. The waves were steep deep blue, save for a pattern of diamond-pointed light on their backs, which rippled as the back of great horses ripple with muscles as they move. The waves fell, withdrew, and fell again, like the thud of a great beast stamping. And then the last line of the novel, the waves broke on the shore. The one, the one school friends both come together and separate as they are older in the way that tides move. They struggle against the futility of life. Rhoda kills herself, possibly by jumping into the sea off the cliff she looks over earlier. They seem to be at the mercy of fate in some ways, and in other ways ride the beauty of nature before them. The waves will keep going after they die. And then there's Wolf's To the Lighthouse, which also places us in solitude at the sea's edge. Here's a quote from the book. The monotonous fall of the waves on the beach, which for the most part beat a measured and soothing tattoo to her thoughts and seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again as she sat with the children the words of some old cradle song. Murmured by nature, I am guarding you, I am your support. But at other times, suddenly and unexpectedly, especially when her mind raised itself slightly from the task actually in hand, had no such kindly meaning, but like a ghostly roll of drums remorselessly, remorselessly beat the measure of life, made one think of the destruction of the island and its engulfment in the sea, and warned her whose day had slipped past in one quick doing after another that it was all ephemeral as a rainbow. Amitav Ghosh's Sea of Poppies from India in 2008, is a strange and beautiful allegorical tale that has become part of many post-colonial syllabi. The sea is freedom from the character's hierarchies, battled against boundaries of caste, is a quote from the book, and the violence of the sea mimics the dangers of life at home. Another quote is, the craft dropped behind a ridge of water and disappeared from view. Jan Martel's Life of Pi from Canada in 2001 and the film adaptation by Ang Lee in 2012 takes us through a spiritual surreal journey through Piscine, also known as Pi, who is lost at sea. Martel looks at the way we can overcome our fears. I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. The vastness of the sea is first frightening, then awesome. 
Quote, I woke once during the night. I pushed the canopy aside and looked out. The moon was a sharply defined crescent, and the sky was perfectly clear. The stars shone with such fierce, contained brilliance that it seemed absurd to call the night dark. The sea lay quietly, bathed in a shy, light-footed light, a dancing play of black and silver that extended without limits all about me. The volume of things was confounding, the volume of air above me, the volume of water around and beneath me. I was half-moved, half-terrified. Life is a peephole, a single tiny entry into a vastness. In Herman Melville's Moby Dick from 1851, chasing the whale is a lot like chasing the waves in barbarian days. It is a dangerous goal and one that emphasizes the limits of man versus nature, as well as the hubris that some people have about our ability to control nature. We see the collapse of normal social order that we do in Martel and Gauche's novels, in Melville's novels, where a different hierarchy is in place and even the top is at the mercy of the sea and its whales. But we will talk about nails next week, whales next week, and I will also be reading you the whales article um, on the podcast in a couple of weeks. I will leave you with one quote from Moby Dick from chapter 111, The Pacific. There is one knows not what sweet mystery about the sea, though whose gently awful stirrings seem to speak of some hidden soul beneath, like those fabled undulations of the Fesian sod over the buried evangelist St. John. And meet it is that over these sea pastures, wide-rolling watery prairies and potter's fields of all four continents, the waves should rise and fall and ebb and flow unceasingly. For here, millions of mixed shades and shadows drown dreams, somnambulisms, reveries, all that we call lives and souls, lie dreaming, dreaming still, tossing like slumberers in their beds the ever-rolling waves, but made so by their restlessness. The sea unifies us, she reminds us of our smallness, but also gives us beauty and solace, Danger and beauty, mortality and explosions of life's energies. These edges of our understanding of our worlds seem embodied in the sea. In the comments, please tell us about your relationship with the sea or other art that has interpreted its meaning for you. I've left the comments open to everyone here, even though this is from last year, and we would love to hear anything else that you'd like to add. And as I mentioned, I will be doing a recording of my whales um, article, which came just after the sea last year. Um, and if you want to access all of the media for these posts, including videos, hyperlinked references, and further reading images, and occasionally a Spotify playlist, although not in this case, um, you can subscribe for free to the Matterhorn on Substack, and you can also access the link to this article in the episode page.